Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Trapping Today podcast. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood with TrappingToday.com, the website dedicated to providing information and education to the modern trapper. And thank you guys for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I've been pretty, pretty amazed with the number of people that have been contacting me that have uh, started listening to the podcast. And, you know, I, I know how many downloads it gets and I know how many people visit the website and I guess I'm, I'm really, um, surprised by the, the amount of interaction with people since they started hearing the podcast. I think that's pretty cool. And, you know, the, the only thing I attribute it to, I guess, is, um, you know, when you're reading words on a page, uh, somebody maybe maybe it just it doesn't seem like there's necessarily a human behind that Um, but when you listen to someone's voice you know it's kind of more personal and you get a little bit more of where they're coming from Uh, so anyway I I really appreciate that I've actually uh, gotten a lot of questions a lot of comments a couple of people ask about uh, sponsoring uh, trapping today and uh, so that's really encouraging and uh, I will get back to every every one of you if I haven't already um so anyway uh, oh also I actually went over to iTunes and so so you can download this podcast in in a bunch of different formats and different pod catchers uh, but you know iTunes is probably the most popular for most people and I, I just wanted to check and make sure everything was good there and the the episodes are showing up and I saw there's three reviews on there, so that's pretty cool. Uh, Sean from Dogproof Trapper, um, thank you for leaving a review. I appreciate that, Sean Ingram, DogproofTrapper.com, and uh, English Mountain Lures, and a couple other guys. I don't know. Thank you. Got three five-star reviews there. Um, I, I guess I haven't asked for reviews. Every podcast I listen to, guys ask for reviews um, because it boosts your rankings and gets you. I guess. A little higher to the top of the list at iTunes, but for a trapping podcast, I don't think it really. Mem- I don't know whether it matters or not. Maybe it does, but I guess I'm not too worried about it. But I really do appreciate the reviews. That is awesome. So anyway, that's uh, thank you to you guys. And moving on, uh, just a little recap on the interview with uh, public radio station that I mentioned in the last podcast um, that went I think that went pretty well so I talked to a reporter for about oh 20 30 minutes um, I went on on a lot of different subjects we just talked about the market in general about what you know what's so special about Bobcats what the types of furs the buyers are are looking for and and why it's a such a hot market for certain items and we talked a little bit about trapping and bobcat populations. Um, I feel like I got most of the points across that that I talked about in in the previous episode. Uh, the The reporter did kind of throw me off on one of the questions. There's there's actually a question about dispatch, which I th- I thought was kind of odd, uh, considering all the other questions were completely unrelated. So uh, I kind of uh, I think I answered that well. Um, I I just um, alluded to the fact that you know we as trappers try to um, take care of these animals in as humane a way as possible, 
and uh, I'm not going to get into the details on how a trapper dispatches animals. That's uh, that's a very personal thing, and that's um, that is up to each individual trapper to determine what's the most ethical way to do do so. So uh, I, I hopefully that doesn't even show up. That's kind of you know the the anti's in um, animal rights people really try to play on emotions with people and they get a bunch of this stuff in the news and and talk about um about trapping as such a cruel practice and and it just plays on people's emotions and i I don't know how to combat that uh other than um just to to continue to um explain to people what we're doing and uh that we're doing things in as humane a way as possible and as you know the alternative to uh, sustainable harvest of fur bears is is oftentimes overpopulation and starvation. So um, it's uh, it's easy to think with emotions. Sometimes it's hard to think with your brain. Um, but I hope we can we can get people to to do so on a regular basis and hopefully uh, show pe- show trapping in a little better light. That's the Bobcat interview. Now with in other news. The North American Fur Auctions uh, recent sale is underway, and on Monday, uh, as I speak to you today, this is the 1st of March, and uh, today I actually listened to the Bobcats being auctioned off, Um, and um, I'll go over the details of Monday and Tuesday sales, uh, but the Bobcat auction today was, uh, was pretty rough. And basically, it's it's just a continuation of the way this market has been, where the very best bobcats are are getting a lot of demand. I mean, the first, the top lot cat got auctioned off this afternoon, and uh, it it went for twenty four hundred bucks. So, you know, the top lot, I think the next lot was like fourteen maybe, and then it went down quickly from there. But the top lot's kind of a advertising gimmick in a lot of ways anyway so so I, I don't put, put much stock in that but um, you know the cats that the really good cats there was a lot of uh, 700 you know there were a fair number of $700 plus cats and every time they would come up there would be a bunch of action a bunch of different bidders and people got excited about it and then all of a sudden you could tell uh, the room got quiet when the lower quality cats came in and the cats that the market's not really looking for. And the prices were way, way down. And at the time, at, by the end of the auction, I, I don't think... I, if I can... get For what I can gather, listening to the auction, way under 50% of those furs sold. Um, the Only the best stuff sold well. The lower quality stuff, pretty much a few of them got offers, but it was it was real quiet. The auctioneers just kept running through uh, different lots, and they usually get no interest. All of a sudden, someone would pipe up and try to bid lowball offer on a lot, and NAFA would say, no, this is what we need for a minimum. And part of the time, the buyer would come up to the minimum, but a lot of times they'd just pass. So, uh, I believe these cats are going to be offered private treaty after the auction is completed, 
In fact, as we speak right now, there there's probably backroom deals going on where cats are being sold, bought and sold. So uh, those uh, the, the auction results might look a little bit better by the time it's all said and done, but uh, it's it's really aside from the really high dollar cats, um, the market is there's really not a lot of market demand for those middle and lower grades. Now, on the other hand, coyotes have had unbelievable demand. So, I think it was yesterday, the coyote auction um, took place, and that was absolutely 100% the highlight of the sale. Um, NAFA said the coyote prices advanced 20% from from their whatever they consider their last average. Uh, it, they were they went really 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 well. So the the good coyotes like those western heavy coyotes that are the right color, the right fur thickness, and and make really good trim. The average on those was a hundred and six dollars. The uh, th- that's just you know I think we're I think the last few auctions we've been looking at like a seventy to eighty dollar average on those. So $106. Uh, the semis average $57. The 57s in line with what a lot of the, the state auctions have been selling coyotes for recently. And then that demand really spilled down into the the uh, lower quality and lower sections of coyotes. Uh, it was pretty apparent, you know, 100% of the coyotes sold. It was pretty apparent that the buyers... Uh, did not completely fill the orders they needed to because they were bidding up um, coyotes on the lower end as well. Uh, so eastern coyotes, you know, for for the last few years, those eastern coyotes have been bringing about $20. Um, those in this sale, those averaged $41. So that's like where I am in Maine. Uh, a Maine coyote would probably, you know, early in the season, it's probably bringing about $25 and, uh, and it's probably 40, 45 right now. So that that's really good, really good news to hear. And then those southern coyotes that get ten dollars, twelve dollars, maybe fifteen, they averaged uh, close to twenty. So uh, coyotes continue to do well. Actually, I see on a, a couple of the chat boards, guys were saying that they got almost as much or more for the coyotes than they did for the bobcats in certain parts of the country. So. Uh, you never know. That's who would have thought, right? Um, so, so coyotes were high, and then we get all the way back down to the low of beaver. Of course, beaver is what I'm trapping right now, and uh, anybody's trapping in Maine right now is trapping beaver because that's all our, the season allows at, at the moment. Um, there were only 35,000 beavers offered here, and and that's a result of people uh, not going out and catching as many because of the low prices um you can't can't blame guys for for not getting out there um for a 12 dollar beaver and in fact this is this is probably you know just when you thought you couldn't go any lower um this was even more disappointing news for the beaver market uh the the hatter market for beaver so the hatter market is uh Basically, these beavers are used. This the fur is used to make felt, 
for like uh, Stetson cowboy hats. Um, that market continues to be pretty strong. However, that market can use the lowest quality beaver out there. So for the first time that I've ever seen since I've started covering this stuff about 10 years ago, um, and even before that as a trapper just you know following fur prices, I've never seen western beavers go for more than average more than eastern beavers and I've never seen section 3 beavers average the same as eastern beavers so the easterns which are almost always the top uh, beaver in the sale they average ten dollars and forty six cents so that's down from the twelve to fourteen dollars we had been seeing earlier on the westerns average twelve fifteen and uh, the section three, so that's your basically the southern beaver skins that don't get prime. Uh, they average ten dollars and thirty nine cents, a full seven cents lower than than the easterns. Uh, so uh, yeah, not good, not good for beaver. I'm not sure what we're gonna do or where that market is going to go, but it's uh, it's pretty uh, it's pretty sad. Um, I I don't don't see any bright spots in that market right now uh, caster all I can say is caster carcass meat food um, that's about what you can expect out of a beaver and maybe a little bit of money for the fur so um, oil sacks make make lure out of the oil sacks uh, you could sell the tail for the leather and the tail for making wallets um, the fat on the tail you can render down to, to uh, beaver tail oil for trapping lure and uh, the meat can be eaten you can be used to feed sled dogs uh, or domestic dogs and it can be used to make uh, trapping bait uh, you can sell the skull for there are several supply companies that buy will buy skulls um, so just a guy's got to do what he can uh, to get what he can out of these beaver. Um, otter, otter were 30 bucks, so about the same as they've been, uh, not too bad. Uh, wild mink actually went up. They're selling the average $11.38. I'm not sure why, but uh, it's pretty close to the $9, $10 long-term average. Uh, muskrats, uh, <clears throat> this was kind of predicted based on the last few auctions we've seen that that prices would go down a little bit um, muskrats average three dollars and twenty two cents uh, so not terrible but um, but down I you know I I thought three fifty to four dollars is where I kinda pegged them at the beginning of the season so uh, they're down a little bit uh, raccoons uh, a few coons sold pretty well uh, <clears throat> there were a bunch of different coons at this sale and uh, the really the, the the largest coons, really prime big coons, sold for over twenty dollars. But then there was a quick drop off in price after that. And the like the Canadian coons were the only ones that completely sold everything that was offered. And those average about eight dollars. And those are usually a pretty decent coon. So um, you know coons are they're not doing great, but. 
that the harvest definitely shows people knew that the market was going to be low and and um, so the ones that were there were were relatively higher quality um, the gray fox average looked good $23 cuz those have been going for like 12 to 15 uh, but then you look at the number sold and it was only 60% of them were sold so uh, so those were probably the top end of gray fox uh, means the average is probably lower than that um, red red fox was the same way they averaged like 17 to 25 dollars uh, but most of the reds uh, did not sell so um, you know it it wasn't the greatest auction I mean it was a very poor auction overall but considering what we knew going into this we knew you know we knew it was gonna be like this or worse so I'd say other than beaver um, this auction really wasn't all that bad um, beaver beaver were just uh, really super disappointing um, but fur moved that was the most important part you know 100% of coyotes sold so there are no coyotes that are going to spill over from this to the next auction um, so so the only thing that's going to be there is stuff that was sent in later and uh, a lot of the other fur sold at pretty high percentages so um, there we're not going to see a whole f uh, the market's not going to be as flooded as it may have been otherwise um, the bobcat market is probably going to be flooded and we may see some big changes there in in the next few months um, just kind of stay tuned on that to see what happens um, but overall that's that's what we've seen uh, in this auction and um, Martin and Fisher have not sold yet as I record this by the time you listen to this they will have sold uh, they they are going to go Thursday and Friday they're gonna sell um, and I think they're gonna do pretty decent um, based on some of the the recent results and things that I've heard about about that market moving on to some other things going on at trapping today uh, got uh, Jacob Barnes from Barnes Wildlife Control in Ohio has uh, he, he wrote a little something up on nuisance skunk control um, and, and uh, kind of just provided a little information for people looking to trap skunks and uh, Jacob is going to work on a few additional items for uh, for the site um, so uh, thanks for that Jacob and um, hopefully uh, we can help provide you some exposure for your business as well in return uh, another article I just noticed recently uh, there's this woman up in Northwest Territories who is started a business I thought was pretty cool uh, she's making these uh, beaver fur hand warmers so it's like a you know natural fur natural renew renewable sustainable fur hand warmer and they're they're just these little these fur patches that you stick inside of your gloves um, to warm your hands go figure right so instead of the chemical hand warmers th that we use nowadays uh, people can stick that in and, and of course we know fur is extremely warm extremely good insulator so uh, I think it's a great idea and I don't know why somebody didn't think of it earlier um, I hope she is successful she got some a few people up there working for her producing those things and uh, I think they want to market not only to local Northwest Territories but 
also like um, I see that as a good place for like the skier snowboarder market where where people um, you know don't mind buying things like that at a pretty high price point and that could be you know kind of a, a unique thing for people to hey check out my my fur hand warmer and uh, here's a little bit of history behind it this was harvested by some trappers up in Northwest Territories and and uh, and, and that sort of thing so hopefully it catches on we'll see uh, the other thing I posted up uh, recently was a this YouTube video it's a historic trapping trapper feature of Oscar Kronk and Oscar is a one of the most legendary trappers in the modern era in Maine he is I believe in his in his 90s and he's he's either in his late 80s or early 90s he's still trapping he's uh he's still going in the woods all the time he makes uh his own line of lures um he just uh he's he's still continuing to plug to plug away and uh the main state library did a little interview with him and showed some pictures of of beaver trapping and and uh talked a little bit of history so i thought that was pretty cool um and anyway that's that's about it but since we're on the history topic let's talk about that uh that montana oral trappers oral history project that i i uh, brought up uh, about a month ago and had a couple people comment on that that they really enjoyed listening to those interviews and i i have not listened to all of them yet i've, I've listened to several and and they're really neat it the craziest thing is that this these interviews were done in the 80s, so in the early 80s. So we've got, you know, I don't I don't know of any of them, those guys that were interviewed that are still alive today. So uh, it, I'm I'm really glad that they were able to uh, to do those interviews and and get that information on tape. Um, and and somebody mentioned that, you know, we probably ought to do that in some other places as well. So. Uh, I think it's a great idea, and and I hope somehow we can find a way to pursue that and get a little more of our uh, oral history on tape uh, as far as trapping is concerned. So one of the ones I listened to that I really enjoyed was was a, a guy named Fuller Lagerman. So if that name is familiar to you, you probably have seen Fuller Lagerman's uh, Big Sky Lures from Winnet, Montana. And the reason that name rang a bell to me was, uh, you know, I, I lived in Montana for about five years and uh, I trapped out there and joined the Montana Trapper Association and helped out at a couple of the local uh, fur auctions. And I remember one of the guys that, that was there, we were, you know, just kind of sitting around chatting uh, in between work and and he had spent a lot of time with Fuller Lagerman. He was talking about you know Fuller had just passed away not too long before that, and talking about you know cleaning the place out and all the stuff that he had and all the things that he made and everything. And um, I th I you know it was I was just always somewhat fascinated about that. And so when I saw this interview from you know like. Uh, 30 years before that 
um, 25, 30 years before that, I thought, well, that that's going to be pretty interesting, and, and it was. So it's about an hour-long interview, and base, the basics of the story is that uh, Fuller was born in the 1920s in, I believe he was born in Springfield, Missouri, and his mother married a cowboy in Montana um, and when he was four years old. They moved out there uh, to uh, to eastern Montana to live on a ranch. And that's when, you know, growing up, he got his start in trapping. And, and he, it was a really unique time. It was about, you know, it was in the Great Depression era. And the fur prices, you know, fur was worth a fair bit compared to what it is today. And it was one of the only ways to make some money. But there was also um, a lot of restrictions. Uh, and and he talked about, you know, there only being a few fur bears that you could target out there to trap and, and actually uh, make it pay. And one of them was muskrats. He talked about he... You know, he trapped and sold bootlegged muskrats because um, I believe he, you had to have a, a license. It was 10 or $15 for the license, and he couldn't afford the license fee. So he he had to sell them to bootleggers. Um, and then, you know, talk about beaver. The, you know, it was an era where uh, there was essentially unregulated fur trapping for a very long time, and populations had been pretty much decimated in a lot of areas and they're starting to come back but the state had shut down beaver trapping in in most places and they would only it, it was only when these populations started to come back there was a very limited amount of beaver trapping that was allowed and you had to have certain permits and so fuller you know he kind of worked his way up and was got better as a trapper and interestingly enough he was one of those guys that had to teach himself how to trap. Now that was in a time where um, the old timers were not sharing their their trapping secrets and knowledge. Uh, it was it was big money. It was you know they made a living from the fur, and it was very very secretive. So he he said he learned how to trap basically from reading fur fishing game articles, and from personal experience just doing things right doing things wrong and learning from that so I thought you know that was pretty fascinating and uh, I never knew like you know I knew the name Lagerman but I didn't know, you know what his background was and and what he actually was you know specialized in as far as being a trapper and uh, he first off he was quite an adventurer he did some trapping up in the mountains, and he actually talked about a trip where he and another guy uh, were flown into an area up in northwest Montana, uh, basically in the wilderness, and they were dropped off, and they trapped for, I believe, two months. Um, they lived on a 10 by 12 wall tent, I believe, and they, they trapped beaver and lynx. Um, in this, this would have been, I want to say in the 1940s. So, uh, pretty amazing, you know, spend two months out there and trap beaver and lynx, 
uh, he did talk a little bit about Martin trapping. I can't remember if it was him or, or another guy that, that was out there trapping for Martin. Uh, but pr- pretty pretty neat. And they, they didn't put up a lot of fur. I want to say they trapped 30-some beavers and half a dozen lynx. And that was that was considered, you know, good back, trapping back in those days because it was hard to get around. No roads, no cars. They're walking everywhere they went. They walked, and uh, for you know those pelt prices, they actually you know they were doing pretty good. So he was an adventurer, but as he as Fuller kind of moved along in his trapping career, uh, he got in more and more to the beaver trapping and and it turned out beaver trapping was his specialty so uh, he he got in on he was doing some beaver trapping in the milk river and then he got onto the mussel shell and that place was absolutely loaded with beavers and uh, fuller and occasionally a partner uh, would trap trap on the mussel shell and did did very well and they would have uh, beaver quotas in certain places, and sometimes he mentioned like he'd have uh, uh, a ta- a license to kill 125 beavers for one particular winter, and uh, that number seemed to keep going up as he as he went along, and became a better trapper, and the beaver populations were were continuing to increase. Um, and then kind of where where Fuller gained his his notoriety is he was, uh, you know, he was always a fan of fur fishing game and reading the articles from the old-timer trappers uh, that that wrote for that magazine. And, and there were a lot of guys there. And I think a lot of young people in that era, that that was their, you know, that, that was quite a, quite a fantasy, you know, just kind of reading those articles and dreaming about those wilderness trap lines and the long liners and making a living trapping, um, quite a romantic thing. And, and, you know, I, I grew up reading some of that, but times have changed so much since then, um, that I can only imagine how, how neat it must've been to, uh, to be a kid in that time. But one of Fuller's, uh, biggest influences was a guy named Bill Nelson and Bill Nelson was an an excellent trapper uh, a very well-known longliner trapper and uh, in addition to being a really good trapper Nelson was an incredibly gifted writer he he could write stories about trapping like few other people could and because of that you know he a lot of people really really enjoyed his his stuff in fur fishing game and and read a lot of his his adventures and stories and trapping methods so anyway um you know some time went on and and eventually uh fuller had been loggerman had wanted to get into the trapping business and lure making and supply trap supply and stuff and uh it turned out uh you know bill nelson passed away and Fuller Lagerman purchased uh, the lure business from from Bill's wife, and so Fuller and his wife uh, started. You know, they they basically essentially what they bought was a, a customer list and Bill's formulas, and and they started making Lagerman's Big Sky lures, 
out of that and and so he never really formulated a lot of his own lures he he basically um kind of carried on that tradition of bill nelson's uh lure making business and uh and did very very well um so fuller of course passed away uh since and as far as i know the Lagrimage Big Sky Lures are still being made. I think Johnny Hughes out of uh, J&M Fur uh, in that area, like Roundup, Montana area, is uh, is continuing to make those lures. So you don't see them everywhere, but there are a few places you can still buy them. Um, so anyway, that's just one little piece of history, and there's uh, a bunch of others uh, trapper interviews on there for you to check out. Um, and then, finally, uh, we're just about done this episode, but I wanted to go over a couple of more things. So every chance I get, I when I get a new trapping book or, or a different book I, or video DVD, I like to um, you know kind of go through it and uh, learn what I can and share that with readers of Trapping Today. So um, I got a chance to read through a couple of books today and did some reviews that will show up on the website uh, over the next few days. And one of them is uh, a book I've had on my shelf for a long time, The Beaver Trapper's Bible by Guy Johnson. And this was written in 1979, so it was pretty much around the height of the fur boom. And Johnson uh, was a... uh, a, a young, energetic, very enthusiastic, and very confident trapper at the time. And he wrote several of these Bible books. Um, and there's some good stuff in there. Now, I don't know what Guy is doing nowadays. I, I, I know there's a Guy Johnson that's a fur buyer in Massachusetts. I don't know if this is the same person. I think... Um, <clears throat> This uh, this guy Johnson I, I thought was doing a little bit of southern trapping, uh, but I could be wrong. Uh, but anyway, uh, it it uh, it's not really a Bible. You know, when I think of a Bible, I think of like a really full reference book that has everything you need to know about a certain topic. Um, this is 37 pages, and uh, so there's not a, a heck of a lot here, but that there are some really good points and, and uh, some good tips on beaver trapping. Uh, probably the best thing was the illustrations. Uh, looks like uh, uh, maybe Bob uh, Bob Anderson uh, drew some of these illustrations, and they show some some really useful things. So he's got the slider, the drowning lock um, slider setup. That's really good. He's got uh, shows what his preferred tr- trigger um, alignments are on the 330 bear, and then shows uh, like a, a set mount set or a caster mount set uh, the the channel set with a 330 and then a couple of under ice baited sets uh, f- for beaver with uh, one with a 330 and one with a foothold trap um, so you know, the, like those under ice sets, the the 330 under ice set he has with a leaning pole on it, uh, that's that's pretty cool. I actually 
I wouldn't have thought of that particular setup. So I think uh, for what I paid for the book, that's probably worth it right there just to see that picture. Um, but I didn't pay much for the book. <laughs> so um, anyway, there's a few outdated things from the late 70s. He actually liked to, uh, he was very adamant on um, putting his beaver up in a, in a perfect like circle instead of an oval. And I don't know of anybody who does that. And then, like the foothold traps, he used the jump traps, which we've got. Uh, we've got some like the MB750 and the CDR. We have uh, far better beaver traps, coil spring traps available for beaver these days. Um, but really, overall, there's. Uh, it's not a bible, but there are probably three or four really good sets that are described here um, in beaver trapping uh, that Guy Johnson used on his line. He's very simple, very um, here's what you do, bang, 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 not going to BS anything. And uh, obviously he was an extremely effective trapper. So, uh, so those methods work and uh, it's a good reference to have. And the other beaver book I wanted to quickly go over is Open Water Beaver Trapping Made Simple by Kyle Kotz. And uh, you know Kyle from Kotz Brothers Lures, Kyle and Kellen, uh, two brothers who have been in the trapping business since they could just about walk. And they, uh, uh, they've got a really great business there. They got a bunch of lure making supplies. I, I get most of my lure making supplies from them. I'm very happy doing business with those guys. Just a bunch of couple of really great guys and they've wrote a bunch of books and Kyle's beaver book is really in-depth it's uh, it's about 56 pages and uh, a lot of stuff in each of those pages there's there's a lot of information there he uh, he talks about you know general beaver population management he talks about the traps uh, to use and then goes into uh, he talks about lures and then sets. This set, that set, a bunch of different individual sets. And there's all kinds of different pictures on where the sets are made, how they're made, and in uh, different catches. Um, the other cool thing about Kyle's book is he, uh, he, he explains a few situations where he has learned from mistakes he made in the past. And I really find that valuable um, myself because that's kind of the way that I tend to learn is I screw things up and then I realize what I did wrong. So he, you know, he talks about um, he used to use all 330s at his caster mount sets and he was having issues with beavers going around him and approaching sets different ways. And he never really was confident using footholds. And he learned a method from an old timer trapper that to how to effectively use these foothold sets at caster mounds and and he just completely switched over to footholds at caster mounds because um, once he learned it it was uh, you know that was the ticket that that's what got the job done so uh, the humility that he had to be able to share that um, and show that you know he didn't know everything right off but he's learned a lot and uh, and you can learn from that too. I thought it was pretty neat. 
The other thing that was uh, just a really quick and easy, the A-frame stabilizer. It's the simplest thing. I've known about it. I've seen it before. Um, but this fall, last fall when I was beaver trapping, I was flipping through his book and I was thinking, trying to figure out, uh, look at different ideas to set up this one lodge I was dealing with. And I saw that page 46, that A-frame stabilizer. I'm like, why am I not using that more often? And since then I've used it at uh, half a dozen different sets. It has worked great. So uh, you never know what you're going to pick up from these books. Um, but Guy Johnson, Beaver Trapper's Bible. Kyle Cotts, Open Water, Beaver Trapping Made Simple. A couple more to add to your library. And with that, uh, we'll end this podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. I really appreciate you listening in. Feel free to contact me, uh, jrodwood at gmail.com. That's J-R-O-D-W-O-O-D at gmail.com with comments, questions, and so on. And until next time, if you're not trapping, uh, keep on thinking trapping, keep on talking trapping, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks.